Hello and welcome to our latest podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis. We've talked a lot in recent weeks about the outlook for inflation, growth and interest rates and what that could mean for people's investment portfolios, equities, bonds, gold and so on. We've discussed that issue with fund managers, economists and market strategists. Today we're going to hear how it looks from yet another perspective, that of a wealth manager whose job is to make asset allocation decisions for private clients. Joining me to share that perspective is Chris Sexton, who's been investment director of Saunderson House since 2005. His firm specializes in managing money for successful professional clients, many of them in the city and in the big accountancy and law firms. It offers both financial planning advice and investment management. Unlike many other private client firms, which charge a percentage of your assets as a fee, Saunderson House operates for most of its clients on a fee-based remuneration system. I've been an independent member of the firm's investment committee for the past two and a half years. So Chris, we've had a lot of debates over the past two and a half years, but there is a central issue at the moment. We're living in a low growth, low inflation, low interest rate world. And the big debate in the financial markets is whether that's going to change anytime soon. And if so, which of those three variables is going to be the one that changes most? What's your take on this? Where do you sit on this particular issue? Thank you, Jonathan. Well, I think the most interesting thing, and I think the thing that we tend to focus on, is the fact that the world, the global economy, is meaningfully different from uh, how it was 20 or 30 years ago. And for us, many people are trying to navigate the current backdrop to the world using an out-of-date map. So we think uh, that the the key thing to focus on is the, the major secular changes that are going on uh, in the world, and to stop for to stop focusing on the cyclical and the cyclical. By the cyclical, I really mean interest rates rising, uh, you know, growth uh, reachieving what it uh, what it, the level it was at before. So for us, the secular uh, is is the key thing, and the backdrop here is strong deflationary forces, and we can see that because despite years and years of uh, low interest rates and quantitative easing, uh, inflation hasn't taken off and growth hasn't picked up. For us, we need to be able to explain that before we can put uh, the rest of the pieces of the jigsaw together. So let's have a look at one or, one or two of those variables. You mentioned the word deflation. Obviously, policymakers have been very concerned about the risk of deflation of falling prices for a number of years. But at the moment, inflation is rising, or, or at least has risen in uh, in the UK uh, and it is above zero in most other developed countries. So are you saying, first of all, that, deflation, that the risk of deflation has gone, or do you think that's still a live possibility? I think the risk of deflation is uh, retreating or easing, uh, but that's after many years of super supportive monetary policy. So these low interest rates and the QE uh, that, we've, that we mentioned earlier on. So it's under control but it's, it's by no means vanquished entirely. And if we think back to uh, the post-financial uh, crisis era, people were really concerned that quantitative easing and such low interest rates would trigger inflation. But here we are eight, nine years later and very little signs of inflation. Yes, it's ticked up in the UK because of uh, sterling's weakness after the uh, Brexit referendum result. Yes, it's above uh, zero elsewhere, but it's really not the sort of inflation that we used to worry about uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and you know, despite the, the the hugely supportive policy, it doesn't look like it's going to come uh, roaring through anytime soon. 
Well, before I press you on that, perhaps it would be worth just uh, reiterating briefly what those uh, long-term secular forces are that you say are bearing down on inflation and keeping uh, uh, keeping growth low as well. What are those forces? For me, those uh, those forces are predominantly uh, the effects of globalization and the defl- the deflationary forces of technology. So those two, for me, are, have changed meaningfully uh, the shape of the global economy. Globalization, uh, effectively, uh, perhaps we can date it from China joining the WTO uh, in the early 2000s. It meant that uh, the global workforce was much bigger. It meant there was downward pressure on uh, wages, uh, and it meant that the, the shape of uh, of the economy. Uh, that we were used to, the sort of post-war, the, the, the 50 years up until 2000, uh, that shape of global economy changed meaningfully. And I think technology just layers on top of that. So suddenly you've got really disruptive industries uh, just changing the shape of various industries, you know, be they, uh, the, you know, the smartphones, uh, very, very, um, you know, key drivers uh, of, uh, of business which have, have actually been undermined by technology. I think I'm more in the inflation camp than you are, but uh, let's think about interest rates then. I mean, do you are you one of those who say that even though the central banks in America and uh, possibly in in, the, in Europe and in Japan are actually talking about slowing down their rate of monetary policy accommodation, being very easy money, if you like, uh, are you saying that you don't think that they will be able or, or want to go on raising interest rates from this point, even though? The Federal Reserve in the States, at least for one, has said that that's what they want to do. I think rates are going up. They're just not going up very far and they're not going up very quickly. And they'll probably peak up, peak out much uh, earlier than people expect. So I can completely understand why central banks would like uh, higher interest rates. Uh, I just don't believe that they're going back to even four, uh, let alone the five, six, sevens that we were used to uh, before the crisis. So... How does in this picture, how does the what we've seen recently in terms of political instability fit into this picture? Is it a cause or is it a symptom of this kind of low growth, low wage uh, world that we've been uh, has been emerging thanks to those pressures that you've mentioned? The uh, political turmoil that we've seen undoubtedly in my mind is uh, is a symptom of the the dislocation that we're seeing in the global economy. It's the the people who are being displaced, uh, the people who are feeling uncomfortable, uh, the people who uh, have deep-seated doubts about the the security of their future. They're actually trying to wind back time, if you like. They are voting against some of of these forces of globalisation. And you can see that very clearly in Brexit, in Trump, in some of the European movements. You know, they are anti-globalisation movements. They are supportive uh, of uh, trade barriers are supportive of sort of national interests rather than global interests. You know, very much a backlash against these forces uh, of globalisation and technology, which are meaningfully changing uh, people's lives, people's economic uh, outlook, uh, and therefore unsettling them. And there's one other ingredient as well, isn't there, in the sense of uh, wealth inequality that's been uh, driven, perhaps, and many people argue by, I would certainly argue by, the low interest rate. Uh, policy that we've been seeing since 2009, and that has also engendered some of these political concerns, has it not? Absolutely. They're, they're, they're all tied together. I mean, the fascinating thing about the uh, technological uh, developments is it, it's, it's resulted in this uh, this split, this bifurcation of the, the labour market, uh, where 
there are plenty of jobs around, but they're very low-skilled jobs. They're, they're, they're jobs without any uh, pricing power. Uh, they're jobs that people uh, are taking and doing, uh, but not particularly uh, enjoying doing. They're jobs without prospects uh, of advancement. And that's that's driving the resentment as well, I think. Well, I have to say this morning I came here by uh, an Uber. I got transported here by an Uber driver from uh, who, who came to this country uh, uh, more than a decade ago from Pakistan. And he said he has the greatest job in the world because Uber is a fantastic job. You can work whenever you want to for as long as you want to. Uh, and you have complete freedom to do whatever you want. So there are there are some people who are not uh, in the same camp. Uh, but the general point must be true. We're seeing that in, in the polls all the time. Do you think that this is actually then creating a, a curious anomaly, which is that while we've seen political instability and inequality growing and all the consequences that flow from that in electoral terms, uh, in terms of investment, uh, it's been an extraordinary kind of relatively placid and easy environment in which we've operated. If you are lucky enough to have investments and you have had money committed to uh, to the financial markets since the crisis, you've actually done extraordinarily well, have you not? Absolutely. That's the real contradiction in uh, in all of this, the, the real uh, the real contrast. Uh, investment markets have been very calm while the political environment has been uh, very volatile. Now, do we put that uh, calm investment backdrop down to uh, policy. I think perhaps it, it certainly uh, explains some of it. So low interest rates uh, suggest that uh, you probably want to have uh, risk assets and risk assets have done very well, such as equity and property. So I think uh, there is uh, there is absolutely something in that. I mean, those who have the good fortune to have wealth or have earned a lot of wealth uh, have got richer. And quite remarkably, Richard, many assets have gone up a, lot, uh, a number of times, more than 100% over short periods of time. Uh, and that's not sustainable, though, is it? I mean, that's, if we move on now from the kind of environment we're operating in to really what is the core part of your job, which is to decide where to invest your clients' money, the question is slightly different. It's not, um, you know, how can we do as well as we've done in the last few years? The question is, how can we uh, hang on to what we've got or what we've gained over the last few years? Is that a fair summary or do you think we can go on uh, further in this kind of environment where uh, risk assets, as you say, equities and property do do well? Yes, that's the six million dollar question. I mean, I think if we think about or we consider the strength of equity markets and, and indeed property prices and other such assets, if we think of them as having been re-rated because interest rates are much lower than they have been previously and therefore the discount rate that you expect from these assets is lower if we think in those terms then we can assess the the the, the strong returns as a kind of re-rating so they've been re-rated uh, whether that can continue uh, is is as i say the the million dollar question one suspects that uh, the rate of appreciation will certainly uh, slow down and the returns we can expect in the future uh, will be lower but we have to ask ourselves if the interest rate isn't going up a long way uh, is there any cause to be hugely concerned about a derating of these assets? And my argument will be uh, that there isn't. So just to put this in some sort of context, if we look back at, um, at how your clients are done, let's take a typical client of yours, someone who has what we call a balanced portfolio, a mix of of, uh, of the main asset classes, the four main asset classes in your case, equities, bonds and property uh, and overseas equities. How well have they done over the last, say, well, let's take five years and 10 years. 10 years takes us back to before the crisis. Five years takes us back to a point just after the crisis or quite soon after the crisis. How well have they done roughly in, in both in nominal terms and in, 
inflation-adjusted terms. Well, we have to remember that inflation has been pretty low during uh, during that period. And so returns, uh, while not spectacular in absolute terms, are very good in, in real terms. So, you know, we are talking numbers close to uh, double-digit uh, per annum uh, compounding up with very low inflation. So that's the sort of uh, wealth that has been created due to this uh, this re-rating. Uh, and as you say, that's what's helped uh, the, the, the wealthy stay wealthy or get wealthier when uh, when those without investment portfolios have missed out. So let's let's look into what you actually are doing and how you're allocating the assets of your clients at the moment. Again, we'll stick with a kind of balanced portfolio. Um, if we took a balanced portfolio, how roughly would that be allocated uh, for a balanced client portfolio at the moment? So if we consider the broad asset classes that you mentioned earlier on, so equities, uh, bonds, property and cash. At the moment, we're about uh, 50% uh, in equities. The remainder is split between predominantly cash and short-dated uh, bonds. And that's really the ballast in portfolios. That's the defensive uh, element uh, that, that gives some protection when we run into uh, to, to volatility uh, within uh, equity markets. And we're quite cautious about how we invest that defensive part of the portfolio. So it's uh, it's held in uh, in short-dated bonds, uh, which are not vulnerable to any uh, uptick in interest rates uh, and duration, uh, and and in cash. So we, you know we consider that to be the ballast to to support uh, portfolios. Uh, outside of that, the uh, the equities are split uh, around the world according to value, and indeed the the the, the, the property. Uh, slice that we've got as well, UK focus, but again, driven by uh, value considerations. So just picking up on one point there, you said you've got your, uh, in terms of the defensive ballast, you have it invested in short dated bonds. But let's be clear, these these are corporate bonds. These are not government bonds that you're talking about. These are predominantly uh, corporate bonds where there's a slightly uh, higher yield than on the, on the government bond. But, you know, essentially the, 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 the key uh, aspect of the asset is that it's not vulnerable to to rising uh, interest rates. So they could clearly be uh, uh, government bonds if we wanted them to, uh, but uh, the, the high yield on offer uh, in the sort of economic environment that we foresee means we're quite uh, comfortable with moving into the corporate space and picking up additional yield. So in other words, you think that it's it's a safer and a better bet to put your money into the uh, the bonds that have been issued by a company like, should we say, Nestle, not saying that's a specific example, but rather than into a, a bond issued by, shall we say, the UK government? I think it's a question of uh, risk uh, and return. So I think on a on a risk-adjusted basis, the, the corporate bond is more attractive than the, than the government bond because you will get a yield pickup and the additional risk uh, is is minimal in our view. Let's just take a quick look at the UK government in this context. Uh, most of your clients are UK-based, I imagine. Well, I know they are. They are UK-based. Uh, but they have international uh, uh, assets as well. Um, but are you worried about the UK at the moment? We're in this position where we don't seem to have uh, much of a government at the moment. Uh, we've had Brexit negotiations have started, and they haven't started particularly well, as far as one can tell. Uh, Sterling has been obviously devalued, and that gives us a short-term benefit. Um, but are you uh, are you worried about a country that is so indebted, has a current account deficit, and seems to be drifting politically at the moment? I'm perhaps more worried about the politics than the economics. I tend to think that while the politics are interesting and uh, fill up the column inches in the newspapers every morning, uh, the underlying uh, 
economic factors are the things that drive uh, you know, drive markets and and drive the long term uh, prospects uh, for a country. So I you know I think Brexit is uh, and the, the politics at the moment is exactly what you'd expect from a, a country maybe thrashing around looking uh, for an answer to the these uh, these long term impacts that we've identified. You know my view is that it will be very messy for a prolonged period. Uh, but actually, we may not see that big a change at the end of it. So it'll be a, a soft Brexit or maybe no Brexit at all. Uh, and a lot of these uh, relationships uh, will will remain in place. Uh, and so the uh, the long term prospects of the economy won't be damaged as much as feared at the moment. So does that mean you won't be shifting a significant portion of the assets you have in the UK uh, at the moment into overseas or, 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 or non-UK uh, investments. But it's certainly something we uh, maintain under consideration. I think if sterling uh, strengthened meaningfully, it might be something that we uh, that, that we discuss more actively. But you have to remember that sterling uh, took a, a real beating after the uh, after the Brexit uh, referendum, and it's only partially recovered. So, really, you've you've missed the boat in terms of moving those uh, those assets overseas. You know, you're going to be paying a high price in terms of selling sterling to buy overseas assets if you want to do it now um, you know my argument will be that uh, that actually it's perfectly fine to stay in the UK uh, because I don't expect these things to end too badly out of interest because of brexit that must be a big concern to um, many of our clients who work in the city in particular how do you deal with clients who come to you and say we're really worried about brexit or we really want to do something uh, when you don't actually necessarily agree with them as you just argued that that you need to do something, you know, decisive just because it's happened. What's the sort of process there? How do you have yes. to deal with that, that issue? It's, it's interesting, and it's but it's been the same, the same process that we've gone through through all of the turmoil over the last fifteen or so years. Uh, so after the financial crisis, after the eurozone crisis, uh, and now the current uh, struggles that we're going through. Essentially, you have to have a conversation, and you have to keep uh, bringing things back. Uh, to valuation. So there is absolutely no point in acting after the event. Uh, so if we think uh, that, uh, that that Brexit is going to be really, uh, really very bad, we would take uh, we would take action. But for the most part, the, the, the response to the client is to sit down and consider uh, the likely outcomes and say, well, look, we've already uh, seen sterling take some pain. Uh, it's by no means certain that Brexit ends uh, ends badly. A degree of bad news is already priced in, and therefore to act decisively now is probably to put more value at risk within portfolios. So, as a general proposition, I would certainly make the case that a lot of investors are far too busy trying to react to things that they they read in the newspapers, or indeed even seismic political events like Brexit. Um, whereas, in terms of managing a successful investment portfolio, uh, it's not always the case that you need to do something just because the, the, the environment has changed. It's a much more gradual process than that, is it not? I couldn't agree more. I think that's uh, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's about making sensible uh, long-term decisions. It's about taking a considered view. It's about trying to understand the long-term, as we discussed earlier, with uh, some of these uh, global uh, drivers that are that are, are beneath uh, the, the current news flow. And it's about considering uh, considering valuations. That uh, all argues for not doing uh, anything in a great hurry and it reacting in a knee-jerk way to, to short-term events. Uh, and indeed, I think you know that, that therein lies the danger. You know, the, 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 the knee-jerk reaction is 
very often uh, very often the wrong one. It's the one that makes the investor feel comfortable, uh, but is quite often uh, completely wrong because they're reacting to market movements. They're reacting to what the journalists are saying and the current news flow. And that comes and goes really very quickly. Well, let's take another example. If you look again at your, you know, your average balanced uh, portfolio, um, you've got the client would have roughly 50% in, in equities, in shares. Uh, but your breakdown within that is is perhaps not as what you might expect. You have basically, of that 50%, 17.5% is in the UK. Uh, you have 9.5% uh, in Europe. You've got 6% in North America, even though North America is the largest stock market in the world, accounts for almost half the the world's market capitalization, 6% in Japan, and 11%, your biggest non-UK exposure, if you like, in emerging markets and, and Asia. So can you uh, tell us why you have it that way around? And uh, whether are you not taking more risk than you should be doing, as some people might suggest? And some people do suggest that. You're, you're absolutely uh, right, Jonathan. Uh, the North America uh, example is is the interesting one because I, my my beginnings in in investing were, were in the, the late 1980s when Japan accounted for a huge uh, proportion of, uh, of of the global market cap, uh, and therefore anyone who didn't have half of their money in Japan was taking a huge risk. As it turned out, Japan uh, has declined uh, almost continuously since, uh, and it was a really good idea not to focus too closely on those market cap weightings. Uh, again, well, I'll come back uh, in explaining that asset location to valuation. I think that's the absolute uh, key driver. I think individual markets are connected. I think valuations are global. I think the cost of uh, equity uh, to a degree is global, the cost of capital. Uh, and therefore, what you have to focus on is not only the prospects for economies, but absolutely vitally for valuation. And the weightings that we've got to emerging markets in Europe are really based uh, on the fact that those markets were offering very good value uh, 18 months, two years ago, something like that. And so we built weightings to those. Uh, North America is certainly offering uh, less value and therefore we've got less of an allocation. And this idea about chasing market cap or chasing past performance, uh, in my mind, investors absolutely have to uh, have to get away from uh, uh, from those temptations if they're going to achieve strong long-term returns. But you are, in a sense, taking a big bet against the states, and that is because the market is very expensive. I think most people would accept that the market is very expensive. Um, it's it's on a PE multiple of, uh, if you take a 10-year running average, it's it's well over 25. Uh, that's very high by historical standards. Uh, and obviously, the market has been dominated by some very uh, non-capital intensive, very successful global IT businesses, the Facebooks, the Amazons, and so on. But it's still a very big bet to take. And you put your money into emerging markets, which, if there is some kind of, uh, you know, future economic slowdown, uh, you would think they would be, they might be worse affected in in, in some sense. Again, I, I mean, I think the we have a global uh, marketplace, uh, and uh, capital will spill out of the U.S. if it's more highly rated and find its way into 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 emerging markets, into Europe. I think we're seeing that in some of the the bids that are going through at the moment. So, WorldPay, uh, AXA, Nobel. You know, these companies have been bid for out of the out of the U.S. because you have a, a strong economy there, an expensive stock market, uh, and it makes sense for these companies to to make acquisitions elsewhere. Uh, in terms of a bet against the US, uh, I tend to think of it as just a smaller bet on the US. So we're not short of US uh, uh, stocks in an absolute basis. We're short of them uh, relative to an index. As I say, that was the right thing to do uh, with Japan. We believe it's the right thing 
to do with the US now. And you mentioned uh, the, the, the S&P, the US index, on 25 times, but some of the, the stocks that have really been moving are on multiples of you know four or five times that. So I think something like Amazon is on an extraordinary uh, PE of, a, of more than 100 times. Uh, and when you see those numbers, you should really step away because in the past, that's always been a warning that people are buying uh, buying a story and not buying economic reality. Yes, it's done quite well for a while. But that brings us to another point, which is the way that you actually invest your money. Before we start to wrap this up, um, the way you invest your money, you don't invest in ETFs or passive funds or index funds, as many people in your profession do. You invest in actively managed funds, which is a very uh, topical and, shall we say, controversial issue at the moment. There's just been an FCA report which has been uh, pointed out how well passive funds have done for many investors. Um, but you stick with active management. Just give us a quick defense of that position, why you are so confident, despite a lot of the aggregate evidence, that you can pick funds that will uh, deliver above the returns you can get from buying an index fund or, or some other kind of passive fund. Yes, it certainly is a, a hot uh, debate at the moment. Um, I would say that uh, my belief in active management goes back to being uh, a fund manager, uh, where it becomes apparent uh, if you watch things closely enough and you work hard enough at picking stocks uh, that the market is uh, not entirely efficient uh, and that uh, there are opportunities. Those opportunities actually have to be worked out. So, you know, they're not apparent to, to anybody who picks up a, a, a newspaper or a share listing or something. They have to be analysed, researched uh, and considered positions uh, have to be taken. Now, my belief is there's a return for doing that, uh, but it is uh, uh, it takes effort uh, and it's not cheap. And therefore, uh, um, like Warren Buffett, I think if you haven't got the the expertise or the resources to, to look long and hard at stocks, uh, then you should be passive. Uh, that's what he advocates. Um, but he, he's by no means a passive investor. You know, he thinks he can spot uh, opportunities. We think we can find fund managers uh, that can spot opportunities to add value. And we're measuring that. Uh, and if we didn't believe it and we couldn't demonstrate it, then uh, th then we wouldn't hold uh, such such a strong view. So just in conclusion, over the last five years, as you've said, you've managed to deliver you know 10% double-digit plus uh, returns on for your average balanced client uh, in a world of inflation with inflation between 25 and 3%. So that's a sort of 7% real after inflation return, which is uh, pretty good for a balanced portfolio historical record. Would you like to take a stab at what might happen over the next five years, throwing in the risk of another crisis of some sort along the way? Yes, you, you, I can. I'll certainly prepare to have a have a stab. But you know, the future is uh, notoriously difficult to predict, uh, and you know, so many people were hugely bearish uh, after the crisis when it was absolutely right to be invested and to uh, to collect that uh, recovery. I think from here, returns will be lower uh, than we've seen uh, over the last uh, five or so years. Uh, but I don't think they'll be uh, disastrously low. I don't think they'll be negative. I think the the risks of another crash. Uh, are really quite uh, small at the moment. So I think positive returns, I think uh, it will pay to remain invested. It will pay uh, to look through the volatility uh, and to not panic and to not uh, listen to the siren calls, which are saying uh, that the wheels will come off, that the world will uh, will come apart again. Well, I'm sure we all share that uh, part of your views, Chris. So many thanks. Those were the views of Chris Sexton, Investment Director at Saunderson House. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced, edited and available on a variety of podcast channels 
including iTunes, YouTube, and as from this week, also Share Radio's platform. Podcasts are free. If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels I've already mentioned. Thank you for listening.